Hey everybody, welcome back to the In Context and Culture podcast. So glad that you're joining us again. We took a week off during the Christmas break, but we're back. And we're still talking about the letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. As you can probably easily tell, I have come down with some type of cold or sinus infection. I have tested negative for COVID, um, positively negative. And uh, so, um, but it just, if it's helpful, me and Coy are totally not in the same room. I am in uh, Florida and he's in Arkansas. I'm where the sun is hot and he is where uh, it is just way too cold. So we're in the seven churches. We're on the third church this week. Um, and that is the church letter to the church at Pergamum. And just as a reminder, when we're in this section of the book of Revelation, um, we have uh, uh, Christ writing a specific word to individual churches that are enduring tribulation. And in these seven letters, he gives a personal and a practical message for these local congregations that are enduring persecution to hear and heed. And you'll notice in these letters, they always consist of like five things. Um, now, um, I'm going to mention critique in here and I'm mentioning commendation. Sometimes some churches don't receive any encouragement as far as a con- uh, commendation that they're doing something well. Sometimes churches don't receive a critique uh, because they are doing very well. So here's the five things that we see um, normally in this letters, these letters to the churches. The first is some sort of characterization of Christ. Um, you see that he has a sword in his mouth. You see that he walks among the lampstands, whatever it might be to uh, let them know the one who is writing to them, that is Jesus Christ. The second thing you see is a commendation. Uh, most of them are encouraged by what they're doing right, even though there's a couple that aren't. Then you have a critique, um, which is Jesus pointing out and um, discipline what they are doing wrong. Um, then in the fourth C is a command. If they're doing something wrong, he commands them to do something that they're not doing well. Um, uh, a lot of times that's uh, mentioned with a, a call to repent. And then lastly, number five, there's a call to conquer. He says, basically, to the one who conquers, I will give him this, which is typically always a reference to um, the new heavens, new earth in the presence with God. So um, eternal life is usually what's mentioned in different ways. In the book of Revelation, as always, there's a lot of Old Testament symbolism and Old Testament references. So we're going to do our best to bring up a lot of those references, especially that are in this church. But I hope you can take a moment, turn in your Bible, chapter 2. This is the letter to Pergamum, chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Corey, would you like to start us out by reading those verses? Sure. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, beginning verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So Trent, let's just dive right in here to the to the character of Christ, and uh, it's interesting because this one is a little bit shorter than the other ones that we find here. 
Um, and it simply says the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now that should hearken us back to um, 116, where he talks, uses that same language. And we, we got to remember that every one of, well, almost every one of these churches, whenever Christ describes himself, it goes, it refers back to that original vision that John had of Christ. And, and it's, the, the part with the two-edged sword in verse 16 is kind of couched in this imagery of God as a warrior. And, and he declared war on the serpent in Genesis 3.16, and he has been working that out all through the course of the Old Testament. And whenever Christ came, he has def- decisive victory over him. And so now he is, he is setting up his kingdom through Christ, and uh, he's got the sharp two-edged sword. And um, so I think what we see here is you have both a sword of discipline for God's people, and you also have a sword of judgment uh, for God's enemies. And, um, and sometimes I think it's, it's evident in this church in particular, sometimes it's hard for us to tell who those two groups are, because they would both be in the church here at Pergamum. Um, but he, he says that he's bringing this sword of both discipline and judgment. And I think you see that in other places. Uh, Hebrews 4.12, um, very familiar verse. The word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Um, you've also got at the end of Revelation chapter 19 uh, that he's coming out, uh, uh, that coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And so, so both of those things in Hebrews 4.12, you have this discipline of his people. And then in Revelation 19, you've got the judgment against his enemies. And, um, you know, as I was studying this passage, the thing that one of the things that came to my mind was, um, was the song by Martin Luther, a mighty fortress is our God. And, uh, just some of the some of the lyrics to that is, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. And so, like, there's just there's this idea that, you know, this sharp two-edged sword, which is the word of God, is powerful. Uh, both to discipline his people and to judge his enemies. So um, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I think it's just so important for us at the end of the day to realize the power of the word of God that we have before us that we sometimes leave on our shelves that becomes dusty and that we don't return to as often as we ought. Um, God created the world with his word, right? Um, He spoke and the universe came to be. God has in the midst of his creation that he has created chosen to reveal himself in his word, right? By speaking um, first to Abram, making a covenant with him and speaking through uh, Israel to Israel and through Israel to individuals. And then now to his people, uh, God sent his one and only son, Jesus, um, who did not come bearing a sword to make war in a physical way, but rather to preach the good news of the kingdom of God, which really kind of tore people apart, right? I mean, mm-hmm. in a way that a sword kind of would. He basically said, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, of course, there's other places he talked about bringing peace. Um, but um, it was because um, following God would, it, it, um, 
required of following God is hearing and heeding his word and the commands of God um, would bring separation between people, even in their own families. Right. Um, We obey the word of God on a daily basis today. And then, and finally, as as it pertains to the word of God, I don't think the final battle, as you kind of mentioned in Luther's song here, I don't think the final battle between um, uh, Jesus and uh, Satan will be a very tough one. Um, Right. I think, um, uh, you know, for just imagery sake, not saying this is what the Bible says, but I think it won't be a tough one as far as the fact of Jesus, I think we'll say be gone, right? Um, get, right? Go, you are banished to the lake of fire. And so um, I, I think so important to um, this whole passage is recognizing, hey, the word of God that has pierced our heart to um, um, to, to call us to follow Christ is the same word we need to continue to obey lest that word come even against us. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, yeah, you have both discipline and judgment in this passage, discipline for his sons, because you're an illegitimate son. If you are not disciplined by God and you have judgment against his enemies. And sometimes in the old Testament and new Testament, those are paired right next to each other. The unrepentant will receive wrath. Um, the repentant will receive discipline right and discipline looks difficult but is for the joy and the good of those that are chastened by it wrath does not look good for those that are unrepentant because it will be a word of um, eternal uh, doom so no i think this is good just to start out hey let's hear and heed the words that we're about to hear um, and about to read together I think too, like this, this for me, I, I don't know about you, but like whenever I'm preaching, like this is a comfort to me that, that there is this sharp two-edged sword, the word of God that, that goes forth and it does the work like you and I, whenever we're preaching, we don't have to, we don't have to discipline in ourselves, those who hear the word, because the word is the one that does it. And the word is also the one that brings the, the thing that brings conviction on the people. And so um, to me, this is, while it could be scary at times, I guess, like there is, there is a, a great level of comfort. And I think it should bring comfort to people who, um, who maybe have family members or friends that, you know, maybe they've seen gone astray in some way or another, uh, maybe they've given in to maybe compromise or temptation or whatever that we're going to find here in this passage. Um, but, but, you know, with, with Christ, like he's walking among the lampstands. And so he's the one that's going to bring the discipline and the judgment. And hopefully, you know, we, we want it to be that discipline that's going to bring them back um, to him into that intimate relationship again. Not that they've lost that. I'm not, I'm not trying to talk about losing salvation. I'm just talking about uh, the difference between uh, unrepentant sin and repentant and repentance. I think it's just important for us to know uh, as we navigate life as believers today, how um, powerful the word of God is. And I know I already hinted at this, but Hey, like, how do we, God has given us a task in this world. And, and I, I get, um, uh, a weird feeling when I think about like, okay, believers are to change the world, right? In a sense, but in a way, if what we mean by change the world is um, see the world come to know Christ and therefore be changed each individually and mm-hmm. giving honor and glory to Christ where they formerly honored and glorified themselves. Um, h- how do we go about that? Like, how do we accomplish um, 
a world coming to know Christ? Is it by bearing the sword? Like, it seems like um, uh, Peter was ready to defend Christ in a way of cutting off a, a centurion's head, right? Or it wasn't a centurion. It was, uh, was it the chief priest? I can't remember. Whoever no, came. It was one of the guards that came the, with him. Yeah. The guards of the chief priest, right? So yeah. um, was ready to cut off his head. And Peter said, you know, if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. And then and Paul talks about us, uh, about um, uh, how we uh, engage in warfare in 2 Corinthians 10. And it says, hey, um, I wrote, pull it up. It said, um, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but, of divine, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Well, how do we do that? We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Well, where's the knowledge of God? Uh, to us that has been brought forth in the word of God. And so how we wage war in the world as Christian soldiers is really just bringing a word that's not our own to the, to, to bear to the world. Yeah. Right. Um, and so um, this is the same word of judgment and same word of hope that's contained within our scriptures. And it's brought to the people 2000 years ago at Pergamum. Right. So we got to just recognize, Hey, these words are powerful. If we're going to try to um, in a sense, uh, I don't want to, this is a definitely a viewpoint of someone revelation, but if we're going to, in a sense, if we want to Christianize the world, if we want to see the world come to know Christ, um, we, we better think twice about pulling out our sword and really instead pulling out our actual sword, um, because that's the only way in which lives will be truly changed. Hearts will be truly pierced and lives will be fully submitted to the God of the, the word. But you bring up something there that I'm not sure a whole lot of people grasp, um, <clears throat> is the fact that like this is whenever we talk about spiritual battle or spiritual war, like we are in a war for the souls of mankind. Um, this is not any less of a war because we're not picking up, you know, like automatic weapons or whatever, like, and, and really this is the only, this is the only war that can change the heart of man. And so, um, you know, People, people want to take action. And, and I think that's where we get messed up is that people want to take uh, things into their own hands instead of saying, no, God is the one that's going to win this battle, not me. And so whenever, whenever we're trusting in the word, we're trusting in him to do it because we cannot. I mean, it won't matter how many physical wars are ever fought on this planet. Uh, that is not going to change the heart of anybody. Um, but only God's word will do that. It, it's really hard to change someone's mind. Yeah. Right. Like we probably all know that coming out of the Thanksgiving and Christmas season, when we're seated, you seated down with uh, different family members on different, maybe aisles of the political sphere um, over a meal, eating Turkey, right. It might've for some of us might've become kind of hostile because we're talking about politics and we're talking about religion. Some of us, and we're talking about relationships and, um, and it's really hard to change someone's mind. In fact, I would say it's impossible to fully completely change someone's mind. Well, what has God's word told us about God's word? That he uses individuals like us, right? Um, heralding the gospel in Romans chapter 10 to change people's minds. Yeah. Right. So the only hope we have to change an individual, as you've already mentioned, is to basically just hold up what the word of God already says. Right. Otherwise we're powerless. Right. But we have the powerful word of God and um, the same powerful word of God that God is bringing to his church in this moment um, uh, will be a, a word that's necessary to have a right response. As it is every time we bring up the word of God, we should have a right response to it. Um, hear it, heed it, listen, obey. Um, yeah. 
Well, man, we've uh, we spent a lot of time mm-hmm. on this, and we better jump into the to the commendation. So, uh, so you want to you want to take us through some of the commendation there? Yeah. So, a commendation. What we mean by that is um, something that Christ is pointing out that they've done well, um, that a church has done well. We see that to the church at Pergamum. <clears throat> Sorry, in verse um, uh, thirteen, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet. You hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So twice it mentions that they live in this environment that Satan has somewhat sway, right? Um, that's not to say that he's not under the hand of God, but there's a specific um, power that um, Satan is held on to in the city of Pergamum. Do you want to say anything about why that might be? Some different ideas maybe behind that commentators have said of why Satan has so much power in the city. Well, I think it I think part of it is because they they did have the imperial cult, which they worshipped uh, Caesar Augustus. Uh, they worshipped the goddess Roma. Uh, they worshipped Asclepius, so like there were all of these Roman Greek gods that um, that they would worship. So there was much idolatry in the city, um, and many times that idolatry was paired with sexual immorality. And um, but I think you know in in the context of what he's talking about here is just like like Satan didn't actually have a they they didn't probably have a throne set up to Satan where they would bow down and worship, but worshiping anything other than God is worshiping Satan because you're bowing the knee in idolatry to something else. And so, um, so Satan, while, while it says his throne was set up there, it's talking about, he did have sway over the hearts of men and women. They had yielded themselves to him just like Adam and Eve did in the garden. They continued, they were, they were yielding themselves to his influence and to his sway, um, not trusting in God, um, but trusting in themselves, trusting in the lies of the enemy. And so I think that the whole idea of having sway over the people and the culture was so pervasive in that area that, that it could be said of them that Satan, his throne's there because everyone in that culture is bowing down to him. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. So there's really two opinions and I don't know that they need to be separated from one another. There's an opinion of, okay, this Satan's throne is referencing um, the polytheistic culture of honoring multiple gods like Zeus, Asclepius, um, which um, his throne was there dedicated to Zeus, which was um, uh, his insignia was a serpent, right? Um, mm-hmm. You had the, uh, the, the, the um, I think, a temple that was uh, Roma's temple, the Vine Augustus's temple. So you had all these different, like, a polytheistic environment. <clears throat> but you also had, rising up during this time, a dedication and devotion to the emperor as a god, right? Um, and uh, that would be like Caesar Augustus, like you said, that would be um, Tiberius or whoever it was at the particular time. And they would sacrifice to um, Tiberius or Augustus, and they would plead themselves in allegiance to the emperor of the day. And the one thing that I think killed Christians was not a personal or better said private acceptance of Jesus as Lord, but rather a public allegiance to Jesus as Lord and not Caesar. Right. right. So, um, so, 
in the midst of persecution, they said, no, Jesus is Lord. And it sounds like Antipas was killed for that proclamation because he is taking um, uh, uh, authority um, and revealing that his allegiance is not to Caesar. And that, that's what Caesar wants, right? That's what Caesar, in fact, even demands. And I think it's so cool if you look at, you know, part of Christian history, the word gospel is not unique to Christianity, right? The word right. gospel was a word that was used throughout the Roman Empire for um, the good news that the emperor brought about an expanding kingdom, right? And what Paul did is he basically, and, the, and other um, New Testament authors, is they took that word that Rome used and said, no, okay, we have the actual good news. Mm -hmm. We preach to you the gospel um, of the one true God, right? That you can have a life that exists beyond Rome with God who will not die like your Roman emperor will. And yes, in fact, his kingdom's expanding. It's just one that doesn't look like the kingdom of Rome. Right. So we proclaim to you the real good news, the real true gospel. So long story short, um, Pergamum was this place where Satan's throne um, uh, was most likely due to the polytheistic culture, but also because it was um, the um, kind of the first city in Asia Minor to build a temper. So to build a temple, sorry, to Caesar, it was kind of seen as a temple warden for imperial imperial, the imperial cult. Right. So if you've ever heard hear about the imperial cult, that's what it's referencing. Worship to the emperor that was common um, uh, around the time and place where Christians were killed. And Christians would not worship the emperor because they worship the king of king and the lords of lord of lords. Right. So that's where Satan thr Satan's thrones uh, dwells is talking about. Mm -hmm. You know, I, th I think one thing that's important about Antipas here, too, is the fact that he is called a faithful witness, which is the very thing that Christ is called back in chapter one. He's the faithful witness. So so there's there's this idea that he is imitating his Lord and giving his life. Um, and so, you, you know, I, I think about that in, in regard to today and modern day martyrs uh, that would give their life and. and you know, they're identifying with the suffering, the death of Christ in that. And, and in that, Christ doesn't call them, um, he doesn't say, well, you've been duped. He doesn't say, uh, this is a terrible exchange. He calls them a faithful witness for giving their life. Um, like the world would look at that and say, why would you, why would you allow yourself to be killed for, for Jesus? And yet Christ looks at him and calls him faithful. Um, and boy, that's the, that's the commendation we all want is to hear those words. Good. You know, well done, good and faithful servant. Right. So uh, I think that's, uh, that's important that we see the Antipas is following in the steps of his savior. Yeah. And there's that big Luke in reversal um, is talked about anyone who wishes to save their life will lose it. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, it also talks about, um, uh, I think it's in the gospel of Luke that basically says, don't, don't fear the one um, that can take your life, but fear the one who is Lord over your life. Do you remember that verse? What's the first yeah. I, We use it in like a past episode. I just can't think of it. Um, the one who don't, has the Don't power fear the one who can throw the body or destroy the body, but fear the one who can throw both body and soul into hell. Is that what you're talking Thank about? You. Yes. That's the verse I'm talking about. Right. And so part of the issue of this church is they are trying to, um, uh, enjoy the things of the world alongside of their commitment to Christ. So the issue is um, uh, bringing their commitment to Christ, but also 
um, compromising with things of the world. And Antipas, as the example of a faithful witness, was saying, hey, you can have the things of the world and take me from it. I get Christ, right? And that is part of what it means to be a faithful believer is to say, hey, um, only one life is soon passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. I will give you all of the world. Give me Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, what the issue that's going to be brought up in the critique is, hey, you want the world um, and Christ be willing to um, uh, separate yourself from the world in the sense of not compromising with what is sinful um, uh, in effort to more faithfully follow Jesus, right? And if you have to give up everything, even your own life, you get Jesus, right? right. Um, so that's the great goal of the Christian is not attaining um, things in this life, but gaining life with Christ. And so um, he puts Antipas as this example for them to follow. Mm -hmm. to say if everything's gone you get jesus you still get him that it cannot be taken from you right <clears throat> so let's go into the critique um do you want to read um starting in verse 14 sure but i have a few things against you you have some there who hold the teachings of balaam who taught balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So you also have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Okay, this is where people typically pause, right? In a verse like this, okay, I have no idea who Balaam is. I don't know who mm -hmm. Balak is. Um, the church is doing bad. Let's just see what they need to do right. Yeah. Or you are an Old Testament scholar and a pastor. <laughs> Help me out. Well, who is, who's Balak? Who's Balaam? Why is he referencing this guy? And what does it have to do with those who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans? Okay. Uh, if you go back to the Old Testament numbers chapter, I think it's 24, um, you find... Um, Let me check. You, yeah, it's 24. Okay, thanks. <laughs> you find this story of Balaam. Um, and the Israelites are coming along, and Balak, who was the leader of the Moabites, was it? I think maybe the Moabites. Sure. Um, he he sees the Israelite nation coming through and sends for Balaam to so he so Balaam can come and curse them. Well, Balaam uh, seeks the Lord and, and and God says, "Don't go with him." But Balaam then re, uh, Balak ups the ante and says, I, "I'm going to give you more stuff if you will come." And so <laughs> so Balaam returns to the Lord again. The Lord said, "All right, you can go with him." but you can only say what I put in your mouth to say. So he tells the servants that they go along on a donkey. And, uh, on a donkey yes. Donkey talks. And, and all of a sudden, like there's this, the angel of the Lord is there with the sword and the donkey um, stops and presses his leg up against this wall and pinches it. And, and so he starts beating the donkey and the donkey looks at him and says, am I not your donkey? you know, I haven't treated you bad all these years or whatever. And so like all of a sudden his eyes, Balaam's eyes are open and he realizes that there's this, um, the angel of the Lord is before him and he gets the message. He understands that if it weren't for this donkey, like he'd be dead. And so he, he understands that he's, he's supposed to go and he's supposed to bless the people of Israel. He's supposed to only say what God puts in his mouth. And so he does that. Um, he goes and four different times he 
he blesses the people of Israel, much to the chagrin of Balak, because Balak's one the Israelites cursed. And so, like you might you might read that story and think, well, man, Balaam's getting a bad rap here because he I just did, did what I was supposed to do, right? Yeah, all I did was what I was supposed to do. And so, but there's there's other places in Scripture that kind of give more understanding uh, about um, about who Balaam is and what he did. Because what happened was is, and we can read um, in in Second Peter uh, chapter two. I'm going to read this verse to you. It says, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Baor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. And so, so Balaam was in it for the money. Like he was in it to get the, the honor and the, and the fame and the reward that Balak was offering. That's why he went back to God the second time and asked to go with him. But Balaam could only say what God put in his mouth, and that's what he did. But if you go back to chapter 25, it's right after the, that scene that you find that the, the Moabite women have come to the, to the Israelites and enticed the men, and they've gone and they've committed sexual immorality with them, and they have bowed down to Baal. And so they've committed this sexual immorality and idolatry. And as a result of that, like we look in other places and we understand that um, that Balaam is actually the one who taught Balak or told him to have these women go and entice them. And so like what this full frontal attack, Balak, Balak wanted a, a, this attack, this curse on the people of God, and he didn't get that. But what Balaam did was so much worse because... He, he brought the curse of God on them by, by their compromise and their willingness to give in um, to that sexual immorality and to that idolatry. So it's a much worse curse on them uh, in that way than it was if Balaam had cursed them, because now God has come against them uh, and 24,000 people died as a result of that. Um, and so, so that's kind of the context in which you find so, Balaam and Balak and, and the sons of Israel there. Let me just say, so is it like Balaam is somewhat, and I'm asking this question maybe to help others. Is it like Balaam is somewhat like two-faced in that he honored and saying what God wanted him to say and yet went to Balak and said, but, but here's how you can hit him where it hurts or here, here's yeah. how you can kind of weaken them and let them implode upon themselves, Right. Um, so I'll honor the Lord and do what uh, he says here visibly. Uh, I'll say what he says. Hey, but here's how you can go kill him. Yeah. Right. Um, from the inside out. Is that kind of similar to kind of how you might see it? Am I, yeah, am I, absolutely. Am I like I, yeah. I follow, it's kind of that uh, in a modern context, I follow the letter of the law, but not the spirit of it kind of deal. Exactly. You know, exactly. like I, I'm going to do what you told me to God, but really my heart is for this thing over here. Um, and so I think that's, that's what, that's why, that's why Balaam is referenced here is because that's the same kind of thing that's happening in the church in Pergamum. Yeah. Because there's some things they are doing well in, this, in the sense that they're holding fast to his name, even to death, some of them, mm -hmm. right. Like Antipas did. And yet what he has to bring against them is that they're, uh, holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, which was very similar. It seems like the way he's comparing them to what happened to the people of Israel, uh, when sexual morality and idolatry crept in through Balaam's influence, right? So um, 
So what does that look like on a practical level for the church then and for how we need to understand what the problem is and how to avoid that individual problem? Compromising is the issue, right? It seems like compromising is a big part of this issue, tolerating poor teaching and then compromising and wanting what our hearts desire, what our, what our heart mate desires when our, when our heart is not upon the Lord, right? Um, well, I mean, I think you see that a couple of ways in the church. Uh, one is you, you think about what Paul has taught uh, in the New Testament about, about covetousness. I mean, he, he says that's idolatry, right? And, and we know that our, that we know that like that as far as I know, I don't have any members of my congregation that are going and bowing down to uh, uh, an idol of wood or stone or something like that. And so like, we need to understand that, that idolatry doesn't just come in the form of the, um, the bowing down to those, those, literal idols that, that you would see people do in the Old Testament, although the heart of people still bow down to idols all the time today. Um, because um, who was it that said our hearts are idol factories? Um, you know, like we're going to find something to worship. And Paul refers to covetousness as idolatry. And so this desire, this, this, this greed um, and sexual immorality I mean, that's the air that we breathe in our culture today. I mean, you know, you can't, you can't uh, get away from the idea of sexual gratification um, apart from, uh, apart from the ways of God, like, like people or, or companies, like they use sex to sell everything now. Um, there, there's just many different avenues, uh, songs that are produced, movies that are produced. Like you just, um, you can't get away from it hardly anymore unless you just completely turn everything off. And so like, there's always this constant barrage towards sexual immorality and toward covetousness. And so um, I, I think, I think those things will creep into the church. And one of the ways you see compromise happening in the church today is like a lot of times there's just been a blind eye toward, toward it because we have, we have lowered our standards, if you will, like cohabitation now um, is just almost completely ignored um, as if it's commonplace. Um, I mean, and I think, I think the accumulation of wealth for wealth's sake sometimes is ignored. Hmm. Um, you know, when, whenever we think about, uh, whenever we think about turning it up blind eye to these things, I, I think about um, many times people that are caught uh, in an extramarital affair um, end up getting a divorce and marrying that other person. Like how many, how many times have you ever heard somebody coming up um before the church in a, in a church discipline kind of way and, and that being dealt with, um, or is that what happens or is it just simply, well, they're getting a divorce and they're getting remarried kind of thing. Um, you just don't hardly ever see that dealt with in the church. And so I think that's a level of compromise that we have today in the church. What, what are some ways that you see? Yeah. So I don't know. I've, I've heard of someone, I've heard someone saying a fact like uh, out of those who attend church, I'm not saying genuine followers of Christ, and I'm not saying um, true members and good standing in a local church, but out of those who attend church, divorce rates are no lower um, 
on those that claim they follow Christ. I don't know if that's true or not. Someone can fact check me and tell me that's not true, but I've heard that before. That's so unfortunate because um, not only is marriage a representation of Christ in the church, and yes, there are, there are, I think, biblical reasons for divorce. So don't get me, you know, I'm not saying that there's not, right? Um, but our witness should be one of portraying the love of Christ in every relationship, especially one that reflects so well the relationship of God in his church, like that of marriage, right? There are many in our, in our churches um, that are, you know, as you mentioned, whether in our church or not, but claiming to follow Christ that are, um, uh, you know, not convicted when they're living with someone with, and not being married to them. You, you mentioned mm-hmm. fornication, you mentioned sleeping around, you mentioned cohabitation. Um, when the Bible is, is, is so clear on this subject, um, a lot of us are confused. Okay, what do I do next? And as it, it pertains to the will of God, well, First Thessalonians 4 says, this is the will of God that you flee sexual immorality. that You don't be like the world, right? Um, and this is something that we have to actively put to death in all of our lives as church members, right? And we rely on people amongst the church to hold us accountable so that we don't give in to sin's temptation because though we have been um, um, saved from the punishment of sin, the presence of sin is still active in our life. And it's something we must, as I already mentioned, put off, right? Um, <clears throat> so we rely on the church to do that. And if we are living in active and unrepentant sin, especially one that, um, you know, so um, uh, just brings poor witness to Christ. Paul mentioned in First Corinthians 5 and 6, whole section is talking about the purity of the church and the purity of the church's witness. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 that the church has done wrong, that they have not expelled the person among them that is having sexual relations with his stepmom. And his argument basically says, um, uh, I did not tell you to judge those on the outside of the church, but I told you to judge those on the inside of the church. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of us think, okay, our church needs to be a judgment-free zone so that people feel welcome. In a sense, we shouldn't have this sort of, sort of anger judgmentalism that um, characterizes one outside of Christ, but we should have a helping, um, generous um, judgment that we bring to bear against one another and are willing to have even in our own lives from other Christians, right? For the sake of someone's soul. The whole issue in 1 Corinthians 5 that they should judge this person that claims to be a follower of Christ and is having a relationship with his stepmom is to kick him outside the church so he knows that he is not acting as a Christian and may not therefore be a Christian, right? Because he's not convicted over sin so that it says his soul may be saved in the end, right? So part of the big issue in this church that, that God is bringing up is saying, hey, I know none of you are perfect. And yet I have called you to be holy as I am holy to reflect the holiness of the God that you say you yourselves that you serve. Right. And so you need to be actively judging those in your midst. And I'm coming against you in judgment because you have not, you have not properly judged those that have um, promoted and practiced idolatry in your midst. I'm judging you because you've not properly judged those that have brought in idolatry. In fact, some of you are joining in with them. Yeah. And it's because you think they're a part of you and you've not, you have not put a separation between you and those that claim to follow Christ that are actively not right. So, so how do we how do we think about this in the church today? Well, you talked about church discipline, right? Um, 
but also even in our speech, I think our speech is important. You see all the time signs that say, you know, to a brand new church plant <clears throat> and no ill feelings towards this, but just clarifying what we mean. All these signs that say no perfect people allowed, right? To a new church, no perfect people allowed. That's totally true. And none of us are perfect, right? Um, and yet um, we got to be careful of being so um, uh, emphatic on our imperfection that we don't obey the command of God to be perfect as he's perfect. In fact, yeah. Hebrews 12, 14 says, no one will see God um, who does not pursue holiness, right? You can expect not to stand before the Lord if you do not mortify the sins that you still have in your life. Right. So um, we can fall into this sort of antinomian behavior of um, allowing sin to creep in our church and then allowing sin to creep in our own lives so that we don't reflect the purity of God and God will have judgment where his church is not pure. And just for just for everybody to understand, antinomian is, just means no law. Anti-law. Right. right. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I think it's important to see here the contrast because I, I do think that that we fall into this and we're susceptible today in the church of Antipas who has stood up against this onslaught against their their faith. And and sometimes we will stand up for religious liberty. And, and our rights to, to gather and worship and, and all of those things, and yet let these other things slide in the back door without anything ever being done about those. And so we have to be careful that our witness is consistent through all areas of our church, not just in one particular area, because inconsistency is really hypocrisy uh, on one level. And so let's, let's be consistent. And, you know, I think another thing, go ahead. You want me to go ahead? No, no, I was going to go on. So so compartmentalism plays into this inconsistency, right? I can justify um, having sin in my life because I've suffered persecution, right? I can justify telling Balak what I want to tell him so that he does what he wants. And I keep a good relationship with Balak being Balaam because I did what God told me to say. Yeah. He didn't specifically say, don't go to Balak and tell them that idolatry is what you need to do. Like, right. So, um, but the word of God is before us and it tells us how to live holy lives. And so we can't say, oh, I did this well for the Lord and I deserve a break. Right. Um, that it seems to be a sort of justification they're seeking. And I'm, this is implicit, obviously, but um, what's explicit is that they're, um, that they're compromising What's also explicit is they've done some things well. And the way that oftentimes we face doing things well and compromising is saying, well, I did this well, so I deserve this. Yeah. Um, so compartmentalism, you know, in a sense, right. You know, just going on here in, um, in verse 15, like I think he's comparing because it says, so, so also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Well, I think the Nicolaitans are being compared to, Balaam there a little bit, but, but we have to be careful because there are so many voices um, in Christianity today that we're not listening to the wrong ones Um, because there are people that will, that will um, tempt you to compromise even in the name of Christ. Uh, You know, they will, they will, they, they will say that, well, God wants you to have these things and he wants you to be happy. And, you know, like that's a little soapbox there, but like God doesn't always want us to be happy. 
Like he wants us to be holy. And sometimes that, that temporal happiness does not come with holiness. I mean, there are times that it does, but not always. And, and we have to be careful that we're not listening to the wrong voices because there are so many out there that are saying that God wants you to have this and he wants you to be this and, and all of those things. And most of all, God wants you to be like Christ. And Mm -hmm. so you have to really judge the teaching by the word of God, like be a Berean and go back to the word and make sure that what you're hearing is not inconsistent with what the word tells you. And fully inconsistent, right? Because a lot of these individuals will teach a portion of Christianity, right? Right. Mixed with a portion of um, pop psychology or manipulation toward greed. Right. Mm -hmm. So they'll, they'll emphasize that God wants you to be prosperous, abundant life, and misuse the meaning of that phrase and appeal to what you want and then not mention persecution. They'll appeal to yeah. prosperity and avoid persecution. They'll yeah. appeal to your personal potential and your desire to do great things for God, but they won't talk about the fact that um, that entails submitting yourself wholly to God no matter where he leads you. And that might be by laying down your pride, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they'll appeal to um, your heart's desire and God's given you a heart and he gives everything to those who, you know, um, uh, uh, follow him. He wants to give you these good things at the expense of, well, what if I don't get what I want? Right. And then the problem with that is, is not only have you disregarded the word of God, but when some, when an individual who's been bathed in that improper teaching gets anything less than what they've been promised by a bad teacher. They think what um, uh, they've been promised is by God and not by a false teacher. And so they lack um, or they begin to lack faith in God to give them what really God never even promised that he would give them. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And that's, I think that's the issue with false teaching is you have so much that seems so close to Christianity, a verse here, a verse there, but thrown into, Hey, my desires are priority. Yeah. So let's uh, let's go on and look here at the um, at the command to repent. Um, verse sixteen says, "Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth." And so here again, you've got this idea that Christ uh, has has given them the remedy um, before before he he gives them the um, the problem that they have because he's the one that has a sharp two-edged sword. And this is the, this is the discipline and the judgment of God, but, but they are to repent. They are to hold fast to the word of God. They are to, to, um, to come back to Christ and his teaching, not the teachings of the Nicolaitans. But if they don't, then that sharp two-edged sword will bring judgment on them. And, and I think it's important to see here that he's saying, therefore repent if not, I will come to you soon and war against them. And so there's, there's this idea of the interaction of both the individual and the church being held accountable for what's happening here. Um, and we have, I think, I think in our American culture today, we're so individualized in our Christianity. We don't often understand that we have a responsibility 
toward our brothers and sisters in their spiritual maturity that we don't just ignore what's going on in their lives and we hold one another accountable. Uh, we're required to do that. Is the the passage you mentioned in First Corinthians earlier? Uh, we can go back and look at uh, passages in uh, Matthew eighteen, uh, other places like that. That we do have a responsibility toward our brothers and sisters, realizing that if if we just ignore what's going on in their life, that it's not as if they escape any kind of. Um, judgment there, any kind of punishment. Christ, he says, I'm, I'm going to come against them. If you don't deal with them, I'm coming against them. Nobody wants God against them. And we shouldn't want God against somebody. Uh, we shouldn't be looking and saying, well, they get theirs. No, we should be saying, oh, please come return to Christ and repent so that you don't suffer the judgment of God. Um, and so we have to be careful that we don't individualize our Christianity so much that we think that we don't have any responsibility towards others. Mm, that's good. Yeah. If I can just say, okay, what is, how, how do we see Pergamum and how should we respond in repentance, identifying maybe some of the things, same things that they dealt with that might exist in our churches or in our life. Right. You mentioned, this is a, this is a group as a group, as a church, we need to identify and help, um, others in <clears throat> running from this sort of sin. But even in part of that is identifying even our own lives. I mean, as we bring judgment against our brother in the right, right way, we also want to notice the log um, in our own eye. Right. So there's a, there's a both and right. So where we need to maybe identify some areas in our own lives and our own churches, maybe look at, you know, who you're learning from. Right. So maybe you're a new Christian, you're at a church, you don't really know much about the church. And that church seems to be preaching a ton about what you can do and how you can do it. Now you can find your best life here, right? Or um, how you can do amazing things. See, some of these are good things. And, and honestly, if they're saying those things, don't say, you know, I heard that on a podcast that you say you do amazing things that you're preaching wrong. But if that's to the exclusion of submitting yourselves gladly under the instruction of the Lord, yeah, you might want to. Um, uh, either seek another church or maybe talk to an elder or um, talk to a pastor. Um, maybe you want to help someone else and who they're listening to on podcasts, right? Um, uh, I have a, um, uh, a church that I've uh, attended when I'm not currently serving um, that has um, a library in this library. I noticed that they had like six or seven Benny Hinn books. And I'm not trying to throw out a name here, but Benny Hinn is dangerous and that he does not preach the true gospel. Mm -hmm. And so, um, the leaders will be held accountable for making that accessible to people of their church um, because the, the, Benny Hinn is appealing to your flesh and your desire, your, your greed for things of the world. And you've allowed that to creep in the church in maybe even small ways that can turn your congregation to disobedience largely. And you, you are part of, um, as the elder and even other church members, um, you know, that should call us account to say, hey, hey, we need to watch what we're um, allowing uh, our people to be fed because they're going in a different direction. Similarly, I think in our own lives where we need to identify maybe some areas in which we may need to repent of things that are happening in our churches like in Pergamum are the issues happening in First Corinthians chapter six. When the church is bringing up arguments for why they can continue to participate in sin to Paul, Paul had taught them. That because they had trusted Christ, they're free in Christ and no longer bound by the law. Well, 
he's addressing an issue in the beginning of chapter six of how they're going to the temple and um, um, and um, um, having uh, fornicating with prostitutes in the temple. That was a part of pagan worship was, hey, when you need something, uh, you go to the temple, right? And so their first argument was justifying sin and saying, well, you know, I'm free in Christ. Uh, he'll save me regardless. And I've done all these great things for him. That's the church of Pergamum, right? I suffered for him. I deserve that. Mm. And so they justify it by saying, I'm free in Christ. He'll save me from it. Or the second thing that they did in chapter six is they um, not only justify their sin, they rationalized it to say, hey, when I'm hungry, I go eat. Like that was the phrase they used. Yeah. And Paul said, that doesn't matter, right? Um, just because the temple um, is like a McDonald's and you can go and get what you want when you want it, right? Like Burger King, have it your way. That doesn't mean as a Christ follower, you can have it your way, right? Because your life is not your own. It's been given to Christ. He owns mm. it, right? And so that's his whole argument for Corinthians 6 is you are not who you once were. Your life has been given to Christ, right? You are not your own. You belong to Christ. So glorify God in your body. Right. So even our own ways. OK, how have we given into our sinful desires and really slowly compartmentalized our Christian life to say, oh, obey Jesus as Lord when I'm gathered on Sunday or Wednesday. But I'm going to have a private addiction to something in my phone that no one else knows about. Right. And this is the subliminal ways that a church is turned away from God when a church appeals, um, uh, finds itself appealing more to its sinful flesh than to denying itself and following its savior. And that's, I think that's what's going on in Pergamon, right? And he said, mm -hmm. repent as a church, gather together and cry out to God. Yeah. You know, just, just one more word again uh, about that and tying it back to the whole idea of Balaam. Like these are not, these are not idle threats of God because Balaam, whenever they came against the Kings of the Midianites, um, there's a, there's a section in there and it said, it tells who all they killed these Kings. And then it says, and Balaam was killed by the sword. And so like, this is not an idle threat of God. And people often think that, well, because I'm a, I'm a child of God, like I'm not going to, I'm not going to encounter um, either the discipline or the judgment of the Lord and all those things. But like, what does he say in first Corinthians 11, that because they were taking the Lord's supper wrongly, some of them had getting, gotten sick and even died. Um, and so just because we are part of the church doesn't mean that we're going to escape these things if we don't repent. Like there is sin that leads unto death. Right. And so um, we, we have to be careful not to, not to gloss over them as if they're not genuine things that we should be afraid of. And just because you encounter persecution does not mean that the Lord is against you, but you must remain faithful through it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So let's talk about uh, the one who conquers. It says, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And so like looking at the hidden manna here, obviously that takes us back to the Old Testament again, where the Israelites received the manna. And, you know, what was that? It sustained them through 40 years in the wilderness. Like God gave them this daily. And then if you think about uh, Christ, right whenever, heaven, when they needed food. Yes, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, it, whenever, you, whenever you think about Christ and his, uh, temptation where he was out in the wilderness and 
and the enemy Satan tempted him to turn the bread or turn the stones into bread. He said, man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so there's this idea that, that this word is the thing that sustains you as well. He, he will give us the bread of heaven and Christ even referred to himself as the bread of heaven. And so like, I think, you know, look, looking at that, that, at that continuity from the old Testament and the new Testament, all of that stuff was point meant to point to Christ. And so I will give you some hidden manna. Like Christ is not with us right now, but he will be revealed on that last day. We will see him as he is we will have the hidden manna. We will have Christ on that day. The people of God were given physical life from God in manna. In the New Testament, the fulfillment of that is the people of God are given eternal life, right? In the Messiah, hmm. right? So, what it's saying here is not like you're going to get better bread from heaven, right? No, you're going to get Jesus, right? Yeah. Um, and he's just appealing to them to say, hey, remember how God sustained those people and kept them alive? Yeah. Yeah. It'll be better. Although be I do think we're forever. going to have good food in heaven. I'm just oh, saying. I don't totally agree. Right. <laughs> so uh, um, why don't you take us through the, the stone there? Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know that we need to spend a ton of time on this, but because um, there's three phrases, right? There's hidden man, there's a white stone, and a new name that piques curiosity, right? We already talked about hidden man, white stone, really two things it could be. I think there's probably a third, I'm sure. But um, <clears throat> a person uh, received um, a white stone, well, from what we can tell in, in ancient history, when they were acquitted of a crime in a law room. They were, um, the verdict was that they were not guilty, right? Um, those who've trusted in Christ, um, are justified um, uh, and, and no longer guilty of the sin that they lived in because Christ took upon himself the, uh, the, the punishment of their guilty verdict so that all who trust in Christ um, are acquitted of guilt, right? And so this white stone could mean you're uh, acquitted, you are um, uh, justified, um, uh, you are no longer um, impure, you've been purified. You will be forever pure. Second thing that the stone could be referencing is um, entrance into a banquet. Uh, we have tickets these days. I can, you know, hold my phone and someone can scan my phone when I go into a concert or something like that. Um, and no one who doesn't have that ticket can get in, right? So that white stone could reference um, someone's admittance into uh, uh, an event or a banquet. Well, Revelation chapter 21, I believe, talks about the messianic banquet, right? That all will partake in who have trusted in Christ. Something to look forward to. That only those who follow the straight and narrow path of uh, uh, that Jesus lays out um, by giving their life to the Lord and being faithful unto death will receive eternal life with God. You will be welcomed into the kingdom of God. And this is your white stone to say, this is my entrance, right? This is a gift from God that I have been given eternal life. So the white stone could reference acquittal or it could reference specifically um, admittance. Now, it's obviously said that you can't have acquittal. If you're acquitted, that you will, that you will be admitted. And if you've been admitted, that means you've been acquitted. Um, he's referencing one or the other. The, the good thing is that it's 
eternal life once again with the Lord, right? Yeah. Using these different Im- imagery. I, I would favor, I think, or I don't know where you land on this, though I'm all about justification. I would favor admittance to the messianic banquet because he's talking about the hidden manna. Right. So because he's already mentioned food, um, most likely it's talking about you'll be welcomed into the kingdom of God to partake of the hidden manna at the messianic banquet. But I don't know. New name. Well, I get like a Hebrew name. Help me out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, probably not. Uh, you might. I don't know. I heard, I had, uh, I remember one time a guy heard saying that we were all going to speak, uh, speak Hebrew in heaven because um, whenever God uh, struck Paul down on the road to Damascus, that he was spoke to him in that language or whatever. I don't know. Um, so Isn't it crazy that that view, and I don't know whose view that is, but I would assume that's one that claims to be more um, uh, literal in their interpretation. Yeah. It's so symbolic. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Sorry. sorry. Anyway, I don't mean to go down uh, that route, but the new name, like there's, there's a reference again over in chapter three to the new name uh, at the church of Philadelphia. And he said, I will write on you the name of my God, the name of the city of my God and my own new name. Like, I don't think, I don't think Christ is taking out a Sharpie and just writing all over you. Right. Uh, I think what this, this is, is possession like this idea that you will be his, um, you know, um, our family, we, we, uh, our, our youngest son, Evan, we adopted him. Um, and whenever we adopted him, we gave him our name. He is ours. Mm. And so in the same way here, Christ says he's going to give us this stone, um, with a name written on it that no one knows except him who receives it. Like only those who know Christ, the name of Christ and have become his have become the sons and daughters of God uh, will receive that stone. And they're going to know the name of Christ. And it's, it's the idea here we get to the end of revelation is that the people of God will be with him and he will be their God and they will be his people. And so there's this idea of possession there. Uh, It's not just, um, it's not just the idea of, hey, you get into this banquet, but you have no relationship with the, with the king who's serving it. No, like you're his and he's yours. So yeah. I think there's that's what it's talking about. Those who bore the name of Christ unto death will after death bear the name of Christ on their foreheads. There right. I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. So so the crazy thing is, like, I don't know that we have to look at the Paul and to possibly him speaking a certain language to mystify a lot of this, because I mean, Revelation, I don't know if you've already read this. Um, Revelation 22, three through four, they shall see his face. His name shall be on their foreheads. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like the name is Jesus, right? Yeah. We're identified with Jesus. I think too, there's a contrast between um, receiving the, uh, the mark of the beast in um, chapter 14, verse 11, the name of the beast, the mark of the beast, and those mm-hmm. that do not have the mark of the beast, but have the name of Christ on their foreheads. Right. right. Those are two different distinct people. The ones who have the name of Christ in their foreheads don't accidentally get the mark of the beast by a vaccine. Right. It, it, right. We're talking about allegiance here. We're not talking about some mystical accidental. Oh, no, I've got a tattoo and therefore I will never be able to bear Christ's name on my forehead. Right. Right. Um, so it's a it's a mark of allegiance um, uh, given to you. Uh, or it's given to the ones of the ones of those uh, who are allegiant to Christ 
uh, eternally with God, identifying mm-hmm. them with Jesus. Yeah. <clears throat> but they were identified with Jesus in life and now they'll be identified with Jesus in death, I guess is what I'm trying to say in the mark yeah. of the beast in the, yeah. Yeah. I think, I think there's a lot in, well, I just think there's a lot in Pergamum that we can, we can learn from that we can apply to us, you know, that, and I love that about revelation because there's so many times that people approach it with this idea that it is mystical. It is this, you know, thing that's far off that, you know, maybe it's going to come true one day. No, all this is applicable to us right now. So can I, can I just get what I think the central part of this passage is real fast? Sure. God can use a donkey but he does not call you to be one. Nice. I'm just kidding. I, that's not the central <laughs> point of this passage, but it is a, a unique thought, right? I mean, he used a donkey with Balaam and spoke through a donkey, but he doesn't expect, he doesn't intend for you to be a donkey, right? You'll be held accountable for your lack of faithfulness, um, yeah. but he can use you. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Totally not the point of this passage. <laughs> totally not the point of this passage. But an interesting yeah. thought. It's a good one. Right, why don't you take this home? All right. Well, uh, i tell you what, before I close this out, will you pray for us? Let's do it. God, we thank you um, for giving us your word so that we might um, be saved. Your words are the words that make us wise for salvation. Or not only has your word that has been proclaimed to us saved our souls for all eternity, but it also helps keep us steadfast and faithful in the present. It matures us. It rebukes us, reproves us, trains us unto righteousness. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be people of your word. And as people of your word would therefore be able to discern the words of the world that would lead us astray. Lord, help us to be coarse in and run to you. Lord, your word promises us um, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, that if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We thank you for your grace. Help us as we keep your commands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.